We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Now, our, our series this morning is, uh, or our sermon this morning is called The Song of Mary. And this is in a series called The Songs of Advent. And so there's a lot to explain and unpack here at the very beginning. And so, First of all, it's Advent. For, for a lot of you, you've done Advent for a while. You know what it is. For some of you, maybe you have no clue. Like, what is this thing we call Advent? Advent is something that we've gotten away from in a lot of ways. Um, though we are a church that is technically, we would call ourselves more traditional. Advent is something that is done in even more historically traditional, we, we might say liturgical type churches. It is a time of preparation. Whenever you celebrate Advent, what you're actually saying is that it's not yet Christmas time. And so for a lot of you, it's been Christmas time for a month and a half already. But the idea of Advent is, means the coming, the arrival. And so what we're doing in Advent is we are waiting and anticipating and excitedly saying, when is the King coming? We're remembering the fact that God's people for a long time, for thousands of years, were waiting for the King to come. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. They were waiting for the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. They were waiting for that one to come. And so we spend time now waiting over the course of December up until Christmas Day, saying, Lord, when are you coming? This is the time when churches would traditionally not sing joy to the world because the Lord hasn't come yet, right? They would sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Songs like we sang this morning, Come Thou Almighty King. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things that go into Advent. And for, you know, I, I even encouraged Sarah. I said, honey, maybe we should try to do this like the really, I mean, not the old-fashioned way, but like the old, old, old-fashioned way, which is it's not Christmas yet. We don't put up a tree until the 24th. Right? We're just waiting, and we'll, you know, we'll sing songs that are like, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. But then we're not going to get really into it until Christmas Eve. And then what you do is you celebrate the 12 days of Christmas. You know, those 12 days of Christmas, historically and traditionally, were Christmas Day, and then all the way through January 5th. And then January 6th was called the Day of Epiphany, when we would celebrate the wise men coming and finding Jesus. And so I said, why don't we do that? And we're just like, don't put the tree up, not decorate anything, and just like have a real traditional Advent. And she looked at me, and she said, no. <laughs> and so here we are, doing this thing that's kind of Advent, but kind of, well, Christmas. So Advent, every year as we come together, is a time to remember that God's people have been waiting for a Savior to come, and what a big deal it was that Christ came. It is us also looking forward to the fact that Christ is coming again. We have seen the first advent in the Scriptures. We are waiting for the second advent of Christ to come. Now, this particular series, there's all kinds of things we could preach about. Um, there's usually four themes that go along with the four candles, and we're gonna, you're going to hear more about that tonight. There's usually four themes um, like joy and peace, and I, I, I should have written them down and I've forgotten them, but there's these ideas. Whenever I'm preaching through Advent, I like to just look at different ways that people were anticipating and what Christ was doing. So for this one, it's the songs that we find in, in the Gospel of Luke. See, in the Gospel of Luke, we find 
these songs. And we'll get into that in a minute, what makes this a song. But at Christmas time, we love songs, right? Because some of us have been listening to Christmas music for a long time now. And some of you started on Friday. And I've tried to not do anything until Friday. um, Because that's just how I am, right? After Thanksgiving, then it starts. But either way, we love Christmas songs, right? We just love, we're people who love music in general. But why do cultures often sing? Why do people often sing? Some people say, well, it's just to express themselves, and that's true. There's a lot of examples we can go to where singing has to do with a response to our circumstances, a response to what we're going through right now, a remembrance of things that have happened in the past. Don McLean wrote the song American Pie, and he was musing on and, and thinking about Buddy Holly's death and the societal change that was happening at that time. Country music um, is generally written in response to um, your wife leaving you and your dog dying and your truck breaking down and all that stuff, right? Those are the circumstances that country music is written in response to and is thinking about those past things that have happened. Taylor Swift, this has changed a little bit, but uh, there was a time where she was, uh, the circumstances were often in response to her many boyfriends and the guys that she was dating and they broke up. Even in Exodus 15, we see Moses sings a song in response to God delivering the Israelites and destroying the army of Pharaoh. So this morning, we're going to see a song that Mary sings, and it's Mary's response. But That response tells us a lot about her circumstances, about what's going on in the mind of the people as they wait for this Messiah to come. And for her, as she sings this song, she is really just starting to click, it's starting to click with her that this is Jesus, this is the Messiah who we've been promised for all these years, all these years. So let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given us. We thank you for the song that Mary sang in response to her hearing of the fact that truly this is the Messiah who has come. There's something special happening. God, may we at this time Understand that this season and what we're celebrating is because something special has happened. The God of the universe has stepped into human history. He has taken on flesh, and even now, he's resurrected in flesh and remains at the Father's right hand in flesh. A perfect advocate for us humans. And we grasp the gravity of the incarnation. May we grasp the gravity of of what Christmas is about. Lord, we know there's so many uh, things that are 
that are good, they're not necessarily bad, but they take so much of our time and energy and thoughts and affection away from you at this time. Lord, may our focus be on worshiping you, on magnifying you, this Advent season, this Christmas season, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our main idea this morning is this. We magnify the Lord for his faithfulness to the lowly. So we magnify the Lord for his faithfulness to the lowly. You're going to see here in a moment, that's what Mary was doing. But I want to give you some background first. Now I know that a lot of you have seen lots of uh, Christmas plays. You've read the story a lot. You've watched Charlie Brown Christmas. You know what's going on here, right? This idea of the nativity. But I want to just fill you in just in case. Maybe it's been since last year. And so there's some things that are going to help us understand why Mary is singing this. So the first place we're going to go is Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 30 through 33. This angel shows up, and she's greatly troubled, because this angel shows up and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So I'm going back a few verses before 30. It says, She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, which is fair, because an angel is probably something that's greater than you and I could comprehend and have ever seen on this earth. And so for her, she's blown away that she's face-to-face with this angel, and he greets her. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she's like, what in the world does that mean? Essentially, it's what she's asking. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb, and you'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the Messiah, Mary, that's coming. And it's a big deal. And she's blown away for a number of reasons. First of all, that she is going to be giving birth to this promised king, this Messiah. She's blown away about the fact that for her, she's a virgin, right? This isn't the main point, but I just want to talk about this today because there's a lot of folks who push back on this idea and feel like, well, of course it doesn't make sense that someone who is a virgin would have a kid. And so many Christians, people who who claim the name of Christ, have actually buckled on this idea and said, well, obviously it couldn't be that she is a virgin. But if you look at her response, you can see. And here's why they say it. They say, well, that word could really mean someone who is not yet married, which is true of her, right? She's only engaged. But she says this, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And so right there in the text, we see the fact that she's blown away for a number of reasons here. So he explains that the Holy Spirit is going to be the one to do this. Well, then later on, picking up in verse 39, she goes to her cousin Elizabeth. And when, uh, let's go to verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Okay, so this is going to be John, John the Baptist, the John who was going as the forerunner of Christ. And Casey's going to fill you in on some more of that because Zechariah, his father, Zechariah's song is going to be coming up next week. And Casey will be preaching for us and telling us about that. But this baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She's talking to Mary here. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Essentially what happens here is that Mary hears this, she's confused, she doesn't know what's going on. But she essentially says to the angel when he leaves, let it be to me according to your word. Well, then later on she goes and talks to her cousin Elizabeth, who is herself bearing John, the one who's going to go and proclaim the coming of Christ. And it says, she, as she's filled with the Holy Spirit, she essentially confirms what was said by the angel. And so, in light of all that, then comes this response of Mary. And I won't read it all again, we'll read it in pieces here. But so Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is Mary's response. She breaks out into a song for some reason. And for me, I don't know about you, but I don't normally break out into a song whenever something happens to me. Um, Or if it is, it's not one that I just write and make up, but it must be that she's under the influence of the Holy Spirit here. And here's the thing. Did she actually sing this? Because you're calling it a song, Ethan. Well, Maybe, but not necessarily. It says Mary said this. But what you see, if you look in your Bible, for most of you, I think your translation, you'll see that this looks different than a normal paragraph, right? Right? Does it look different than a normal paragraph on your page there? It's different. Um, this is a Hebrew form of poetry. It's called parallelism. It's where it's these two lines, right? And these two lines, and I've talked about this as I've preached on the Psalms before, but Hebrew poetry... And that was the kind of poetry that was still influencing them, was concerned about ideas that happen in these two lines, right? For us, whenever we uh, do poetry or, or do a song, we like it to do what? what? What's the thing that makes poetry poetry usually? Is that it r- rhymes, right? And now for them, they weren't concerned so much about the sound of the word rhyming, right? They were concerned about the idea from one line to the next rhyming. And sometimes it was the same idea stated again. Sometimes it was contrasted right? Sometimes it continued it. But so we see here this poetic, musical form that's happening. And this is on purpose. So she starts off, but here's what she says, okay? The first thing she's doing is she is magnifying the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. When you magnify something, what are you essentially doing with it? You're making it bigger, right? You're making it bigger. Now, this is something that John Piper, if you, I, I, some of you have heard me talk about him before. John Piper, who is, he's retired now, but he is a pastor up in uh, Minnesota. And so for him, he talks about this. And the idea here is this. We've got to be careful of what we mean by magnify. Because there's actually two instruments in this world that magnify, right? One is a microscope. And a microscope takes what kind of things? Little things, and it makes them look big. But there's another kind of magnification, another kind of instrument that does that, and it's a telescope. And a telescope takes things that are really what? Far away. Now, those things, though they're far away, they look small to us, but what are they actually? They're big, right? When you look at a planet, is that planet bigger than you? Yeah, is that planet bigger than the bacteria you're looking at with a microscope? Yeah. The magnification that we do when we praise God is not that of a microscope. We're not taking this little idea of God that we've made up and we're we're trying to zoom in and see good things about it. 
Instead, that magnification that happens when we magnify and praise the Lord is us like looking at a telescope and looking out at God who is very far away from us in a lot of ways, right? Because of our sin, because of the fact that at this point, he's not even, the incarnation's not happened. And she's looking at him and she is saying, our God is so big and my soul is magnifying him to make him look great. What she's doing is saying, this is how great my God is. And I'm starting to understand it better, right? He was far away from me. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what this angel was telling me. But now I see and my soul magnifies him. My soul wants you to see how great he is. So she's rejoicing in God in a way that makes God look great. But why? Why does she do this? Well, it's because of the actions that he is taking, He is doing something here that goes against the ways of the world, that goes against the things that make sense in the world. He's actually, she says, looking on her humble estate. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He does great things for Mary. So he lifts up the holy. And this is what he does. And we see if we look around, just scan your eyes over those verses, we see, like in 51, he has shown strength with his arm. We have a God who is strong, who is mighty, as she says, who is holy there in verse 49. He's a God who is strong, mighty, holy. And he has the ability to take that which is in the world lowly, of little esteem, not really worth much in the eyes of the world, and he's able to take that and to lift it up. And so that is what he's doing here, and that's what she's praising him for. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. So he's shown this grace to Mary, and it's a special blessing to her. And it doesn't come... It's it's interesting because for her, you'd think because of her humble estate, she wasn't really much of anything, right? She's a woman which in that day didn't really count for much socially. She was unmarried. She's betrothed, but not yet married. And at this point, she's pregnant outside of marriage. She's coming from a very low place in that society. She wasn't special. She wasn't royal. She wasn't politically important. And she certainly wasn't sinless, as some folks want to say. That's another conversation and another sermon for another day. But Mary was not sinless as some say. Because she just referred to the Lord as her Savior, and if she's sinless, she doesn't need a Savior. But she says, he's the Lord, my Savior. So obviously, she needs one. But she is lowly in that God took her a sinner, and he chose to use her for his own glory. And because he did that now, we look at her. What she said is coming true. That prophecy is coming true right here and right now. Because we're looking on her, and we're saying that she is blessed. All generations will call me blessed. And we're here saying that's true of her. Isn't that interesting? Prophecy is being fulfilled here today. So he lifts up the lowly. And we see this as an example of Mary who he lifts up. But this morning, I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about those folks who are truly lowly. And what do we mean by that? Who is he here for? So we see here, taking off from verse 50, 
a God, and especially in 51, 52, 53, he's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brought down the mighty from their thrones. He exalted those of humble estate. He filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He sent away empty. The idea here is this, that he is humbling the proud and that he is exalting the humble. This is the story of God and his people from the beginning. This isn't some brand new thing. It's coming into focus. It's becoming more clear here as we're waiting for Jesus to come and as Mary is realizing all this. But this is the story of God's people from the beginning. Because, see, there's a lot of folks, and you've done it too and I've done it too, who pride creeps in and we say, I don't need God, right? That happens to us. And when that happens, the Lord is sure to humble us. To bring a humiliation to us. Mary, as she is saying all this, truly has in mind the entirety of the history of Israel. Of her people who have been waiting on this Messiah. She has in her mind the garden. Where Adam and Eve are made in this great, beautiful way. They're made in the image of God and they're the only ones. They're given dominion over the entirety of the earth as these image bearers of God. So they are highly exalted But then, in their pride, they disobey God's command. And what happens? They get kicked out of the garden. He humbles the proud, right? We see in Egypt, God's people, who were in slavery. And there's someone there who is proud, who is the Pharaoh, who thinks that his gods of his nation can withstand the God of Israel. But one after one, the plagues come. And in each of those plagues is God showing that he is the God over those so-called gods of Egypt. Every single one of those plagues had to do with one of their Egyptian gods, like Ra, the sun god, and God makes it dark in the entirety of Egypt. Right? They had frog gods, and what does he do? He brings frogs. And he's showing that I have control over this, not you and these so-called gods. And he humbled Pharaoh in Egypt there. Saul is one who, in the book of 1 Samuel... If we'd have kept going on, and it's an interesting parallel that Mary's singing this, and it's a lot of the same ideas coming from Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. And Saul is made the king, but in spite of the fact that God is the one who made him the king, he becomes proud, thinking it's his own doing, his own good looks, his own uh, political prowess, his own whatever. And he starts to think that he's so great, and he takes on God's anointed man, David, and God humbles Saul. We see this with Israel and Judah. As they finally get established, they finally have some kings, though there is a split between and what was once just the whole country of Israel breaks into Judah and then Israel, the rest of the tribes. They have ups, they have downs, but as they are established, they forget who they were and where they came from, and they forgot the one who brought them out of slavery. And they become proud, and they leave justice in so many ways, and they pursue sin. And God humbles the proud. In some of these cases we've talked about, though, with that humility that finally comes when God breaks a person, he brings that humility, and then he brings forgiveness. He brings the promise of hope, right, for Adam and Eve. He humbled them in their pride, but as they became humble, he gave a promise of hope. He's sending a Savior one day. He brings back Israel and Judah from captivity after a time. And brings them back and re-establishes them. 
So she has these things in mind. What she is talking about here is a specific kind of humility, a specific kind of lowliness. And that's why I said there in my slides, the truly lowly, which I'm not sure if that's technically the right way to say it. Um, I don't know if you can put two adverbs together like that. I'm sure there's some kind of rule. But the truly lowly. See, we have to understand that this is a certain kind of humility. Lowliness isn't inherently some class. Lowliness isn't just not having much money, not having much material goods. It's not lacking recognition. It's not um, not being recognized by people socially. But instead, lowliness is a disposition of the heart. Now, a lot of times that comes with not having much. That comes with not being well thought of. That comes with being oppressed in some way. But here's the thing. What he's not saying here, and what so many people get into the idea of, is that being uh, socially, financially, whatever, lowly, is not, for whatever reason, inherently virtuous. Now, we know on the other side of that spectrum is the fact that Jesus says it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's actually easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. So we understand that on the other side. But what he's not saying is that there is some inherent kind of righteousness in not having much. He's talking about a particular disposition of the heart. Because here's the thing. It is possible, actually, to know that the Scripture says that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And to know that and to say, well, I don't have much. I'm certainly not rich. And to look around at people who have more than you and think that you are spiritually superior to them. That is absolutely a possibility. To have pride in you having little as you look around at people and judge them, thinking they are judging you, and actually judge them. But that's not the case here. He's talking about a disposition of the heart. Because see, if that is the case, if you find pride in having little and think that you are spiritually superior because of that, what that actually means is spiritually you are not lowly but proud. See, he's concerned about those who have a fear for him. That's what he says, right? His mercy, according to verse 50, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He actually goes on and references, or I'm sorry, she goes on and references the spiritual father of all of God's people, who is Abraham, right? Abraham is the spiritual father of God's people. He was the physical father of all of Israel, right? That's why we sing that song, Father Abraham has many sons, and many sons has Father Abraham, and I am one of them. Because see, it's more than just the fact of physical descent. The reason that we as Christians can sing, and I am one of them. See, I did sing today. I didn't think I was going to sing, because it's about songs. But here I am. You know, I'm one of them, and so are you, and let's all praise the Lord. Abraham is the father of our faith. He is the father of God's people, spiritually. Because he had faith in God's promise. And all now who come and have faith in God's promise are sons and daughters of Abraham. So he has this spiritual father of these lowly people who fear the Lord. But the thing about Abraham is this. Abraham was filthy, stinking rich in his day. He had cattle. He had recognition. 
But he lacked one thing that God used to give him a humility. And that one thing that he lacked was what? A son, an heir. And God came to him and promised and said, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless the entirety of the world through you and your offspring and your descendants. And Abraham said, hold on. I don't have a son. And I'm really old. So what's up with that? But God was faithful, wasn't he? That's why, we have, that's why the nation of Israel exists in the Bible. Because they came from Abraham. It says, he, helped, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Abraham was likely in some ways from a, a, a man-made perspective, a, a worldly humanistic perspective, because he was rich. He was great in a lot of ways. But he was also unlikely because he, did, he had something going on that he could not fix himself, and that was the lack of a son. A great man, but without an heir. But God made this promise. He was faithful to do it. He was faithful to take Abraham, who was great in some ways, but spiritually was lowly and humble, and to use him for great things. See, Abraham was, at the end of the day, actually really unlikely. And the thing is that so are you. You are unlikely. We see these examples these three exam- or so in these three examples, we see that our God is one who doesn't use the strong things of this world, right? He is one who is here, and he has a purpose, and it is to use the lowly things. But it's used as who are truly spiritually lowly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29 says this, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, our God has looked on us, those of lowly estate. We have to understand that every single human being is one who is unlikely. Because every single human being is under the curse of Adam. And so for us, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with him. But God chooses the weakness of the world to shame the wise. And he chooses the lowly to make his way known. And he did it in the life of Mary, who had nothing really going on with her except for the fact that she was faithful to God. He sent Jesus into a family that was not well respected, not well known. His father was a carpenter. They grew up in Nazareth, which probably makes, you know, Dysertville look big. It was, it, was, it was nothing. No offense to Dysertville if you're from there. But God chose these little things and says, I'm going to make a way so that you understand that it is not you who did it. It's not your doing, but it's mine. He chose Mary to say, I'm not going to have him born into a palace. I'm going to have him born in a stable. Because it's not their doing. It's my doing. He chooses now the lowly, those who will humble themselves. This is actually what we've talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who are poor in spirit. Another way of talking about lowly here 
is poor in spirit. Those who understand that they cannot do anything to make themselves righteous with God on their own. So if you're here this morning as a Christian, I need you to understand that God has looked on you like Mary. You are of lowly estate. You have nothing going on, really, to make you great, to make God choose you. But still, he has. And he set his affection on you, and he has saved you and glorified you. And now your job is to be like Mary here and to magnify him, to make him look great. So I'll encourage you with this, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, is to ask yourself, how am I magnifying my Savior this Advent season, this Christmas season, in this time where people are thinking about him? What am I doing and how can I do to magnify Christ now? I hope you'll magnify him, first of all, through the testimony of him looking on you in your lowly estate and saving you. Helping people understand that you deserve nothing. When you tell your testimony, that doesn't mean coming up to the front and talking about it, but it's just telling people, telling coworkers, telling family, telling friends. So when you're sitting around the dinner table at a holiday family get-together, and you're talking about how great God has been to save you, I hope that you'll magnify him in that way, and that I'll magnify him in that way. I hope you'll magnify him by actually living out his grace. The grace that says that it's not about you and what you've done, but it's about me and what I'm doing. I hope that his generous grace actually leads you to be generous with other people. And at this time of year, that might look like being generous financially, materially. Asking, what can I give to help someone out right now? I hope it looks like being generous and sharing the gospel with those who are lowly. That takes an actual kind of generosity, doesn't it? Because, see, that means being generous with your time. The kind of time it takes for us to actually build the kind of relationships with people that are necessary to speak into their lives and show them that they're a sinner in need of a Savior takes an incredible amount of time. Sometimes God miraculously does it in a moment. He might do it staying in line at Food Lion. But a lot of times it takes relationships. And it takes you being generous with your time and saying that I can give of my own time to do this. And I hope you will be generous by sharing the gospel with those who are lowly and who are overlooked by many Christians in our outreach. I hope you're generous in your attitude also, recognizing as you interact with people who you actually are. You are one who is lowly. You are one who is of no estate. You are one who was brought into the kingdom, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done. So, Christian, I hope that you will sing this truth, maybe not literally, right, but spiritually, through your actions, with your life. You will sing the truth that God is a God who lifts up the lowly, and for us to be like him is to do the same. To be like Mary, to magnify Christ. For the unbeliever this morning, though, I hope you understand what the message for you is. See, for you, you feel like maybe you've come around church and it's been something that maybe made you nervous. You feel comfortable coming at a time like Christmas. It's like you have to do all these things to make yourself good enough to come to church. But I need you to understand something. What Christ wants from you is to not try to cover up your sinfulness, but instead to become lowly and humble and say, I cannot save myself on my own. Getting dressed up to come to church is not going to save me. Coming here and being perfectly quiet is not going to save me. Not falling asleep during the sermon is not going to save me. 
okay? Giving money to people um, as you're shopping, right? Like the people ringing the bells, that's not going to save me. But instead you would understand that God is calling you to become lowly. Whether you're rich or you're poor, understand this. It's not about doing one of those things. It's about being humble in spirit, poor in spirit. You have a king who, though he was rich in heaven, became poor by coming to this earth, becoming a human. He is one who is both great and who made himself lowly. It doesn't matter what your, what your circumstances are and what your background is. Christ's call to you is that I came to this earth. I was born. I lived a life you couldn't live, and I died a death that you couldn't die to save you from your sins. And I hope that you will receive his mercy by fearing him. This is going back just to that verse, verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him. For a lot of us, we feel weird about this kind of talk, right? Because we always want to talk about the positive things in Christianity. And it feels uncomfortable to talk about fearing God. But his call is to fear him. You need to understand something. There is a fear of God that is good and right. There's some of us who live in fear in a way that's not healthy and not helpful. But he has called you to be in fear of him, understanding that he is the one who can throw body and soul into hell. The thing is that fear can come to an end, at least in a certain sense. Because you can put your hope in Christ, knowing that he looks on the lowly. I hope that you'll recognize that you're a sinner, that you will humble yourself and say that I cannot do this on my own. I need to make Christ my Savior. Seek the humility that comes from fearing the Lord. But do this, though. If you're here and you're not a Christian, don't ignore that low place you're in. Maybe you are in an actual low place financially, socially, with your family, through a bad divorce, whatever it is, and you're in a very low place. I want to encourage you to not ignore that low place because God may be using that to try to get your attention, to help you understand that you, in your own wisdom, don't know what to do to get your life together. Only he does. But you can be raised up by Christ. You can be raised up by the God who loves you and who lifts up the lowly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would ask, or I pray that you would help us to understand just how lowly we are. And Lord, may we praise you for the fact that you have saved us in that low place that we were in spiritually. And may it lead to us magnifying you, singing and talking and living in such a way that puts you on display and helps people to see. Lord, as we, as we go throughout our day and our life, as we look at your scripture, as we pray to you, and, and in all these ways, figuratively, we're peering through the telescope to look at you and how great you are. Lord, may you help us to find people and, and, and to call out to them and say, come here and look at this. Look through this eyepiece. Look through this telescope and see how great my God is. It may feel as though he is far away, but you can see his greatness because of what he's done. May we magnify you this Advent season, this Christmas season. And would you save many souls in this month? Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name.